we live in a pretty sick society when it comes to bodies, pleasure and food and all of this stuff. And so trying to be healthy in an unhealthy society is very, very complicated and hard. Hey, I'm Kelly Corrigan, and wondering is how I spend the best parts of every day. Like, I've been wondering a lot lately about how change actually happens for cultures and systems and also people. I wonder how so many ideas about beauty and the body get warped in the minds of so many people. I wonder what makes so many people want to be so dangerously thin and what happens to make those same people healthy and safe from their worst habits. Kelly Corrigan Wonders is a place for people who believe that knowing more and feeling more will help us do more and be better. Hey, everybody. If you love listening to true stories from people all around the world, then we have the perfect recommendation for you, the Moth Podcast. Each episode features people from moth events around the globe, sharing diverse and honest stories of love, resilience, change, heartbreak, chance encounters, unbelievable calamities, and everything in between. Episodes drop weekly. Find The Moth Podcast on Spotify, Apple, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states and situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. I am Kelly Corrigan, and today I'm wondering about who decides what is beautiful how that ideal gets circulated and reinforced, and how to support people who become slaves to that ideal. I have two guests. The first is one of my nearest and dearest. Her name is Arielle, who I guess in this instance, I should call Dr. Arielle Trost. She's a clinical psychologist who's counseled hundreds of people over many years, people who have struggled mightily with anorexia and bulimia. With Arielle is a longtime patient of hers named Lindsay, who cycled between starvation, binge eating, and bulimia as a high school student, went to inpatient treatment before college, and is now a labor and delivery nurse, as well as a stage four cancer patient in her 30s. This episode does include references to eating disorders, which some listeners may find troubling. Listener discretion is advised. I wanted to start with Arielle to sort of get my head around what is this change we're seeing? So, Arielle, could I just ask you, like, for starters, what happened to the idea of, like, um, big is beautiful and this sort of Rubenesque ideal, and how did we get to the Twiggy ideal? I think the change you're talking about is reflective of um, cultural changes and, and changes in what we value and sort of how those values get played out on the body. I don't know that I would agree that the ideal has narrowed. Um, I think that 
anytime there is a singular ideal, you have a lot of people who can't get anywhere close to that, right? Which is also maybe a part of how beauty operates in that it has to be something rare or, you know, um, just out of reach for most people, you know, but the Rubenesque piece was, you know, during a time where the way that status was conferred was by leisure time and ample money to have, you know, ample food and pale skin was also kind of, you know, a piece of having leisure. You weren't outside working, Mm. right? And delicate hands, right? hands that had never seen the dirt. Right. And probably no, no arm muscles, like no Michelle Obama arms, you know, (laughs) like that, you know, that signified like heavy labor. Right. Right. That you couldn't afford to have other people do it for you. So then if that signified power in its own way, what does the Twiggy body signify? Well, the moment of Twiggy, I mean, there's kind of this theory is that as women were sort of entering into sort of more male spheres that they're you know, the ideal body became more male, became more, you know, sleek and less narrow hipped, narrow hipped, you know, all of that. I mean, it's the J crew model body. Sure. I mean, it's, it's the Virginia Slims body, right? Right. And wasn't Virginia Slims like sort of out there, like smoke cigarettes instead of eating? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, people, I, you know, one of the other pieces is people still will talk about you know, I'm going to drink tonight, so I'm not eating. You know, I mean, there are these ways that, you know, we use deadly substances as meal replacements. Which is so self-punishing. So how much control do people actually have of their weight? A lot less than people think, Mm. right? I mean, I think that um, there's this idea that our weight is um, a sort of, a clean linear equation of food and exercise and and then the output is weight. Right? Sure. And, and of I, course we have that idea because there have been, I don't know how many decades of books and television shows and doctors and science telling us if you yeah. do A plus B equals C, period. Mm-hmm. Nobody's saying that 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 there's some other there are other factors. Well and if you don't, then you're a failure right? Because this is a simple equation and all of the people who have figured it out are doing it right. And if you don't have that outcome, you must be doing it wrong. I think this all the time. I think I really want to see your family photo. I do because I want to know, is this like your genetics? Mm -hmm. Like it's, it's the same with skin actually, since we were just talking about it, like people wrinkle it, like look at my mom and my grandma, like I'm going to tell you exactly what my skin's going to look like because I have the sort of proof right there. And I can sort of tell you what my body's going to look like. But it's so interesting because there is a certain pride in a thin, fit person that maybe is based on genetics and not all this effort. Like oftentimes when I go to, this is a perfect example, oftentimes when I go to yoga, everyone has these beautiful bodies. And I think you didn't get that body from doing what yoga. What do you mean by beautiful? What do you mean when you say that? Mm. The, you know, the kind of beautiful body you're supposed to have, like no, no tummy sticking out, nice Michelle Obama arms, 
mm-hmm. you know, it, I, like boobs that aren't like down near your waist. I mean, all the things that that I bemoan when I get down on myself. Like I don't, I don't have great feelings about my body at all, and mm-hmm. I feel like a really sane person who cares about what matters. But every day, I think awful, terrible thoughts about my own body, and I don't think I'm alone. No, you're not. And you are somebody who has so many other things that you value and so many other things that make you feel successful in the world, right? So you're the amount of space maybe that your body image takes up in your mind is one size. And imagine if you you know, weren't a successful author, if people didn't like to listen to you, if your marriage were falling apart, right? Again, back to this issue that you were talking about around control, you know, there would be this idea, if I were thinner, if I looked different, if my boobs didn't hang quite so far down, you know, maybe I would be happier, I would be more successful, I would be more lovable, you know, those kinds of things. Yeah. I have often had the thought of like, what if there were no mirrors? Because I wouldn't have a negative thought all day long if I didn't have to look at myself. And then you think about Zoom. I mean, the Mm -hmm. the amount of information I have about my neck, thanks to Mm -hmm. Zooming, is just a hundred times more information than I'm interested in. Well, and the amount of judgment you have about your neck because of the other necks you've seen mm-hmm. and because of what you've been taught necks are supposed to look like, right? I mean, I was thinking before our conversation about how, you know, I, I don't think I was alone when I was a teenager. My walls were covered in magazine tear outs of, you know, Benetton ads or, you know, other like luxury kind of, you know, ads. And it was all these bodies. And back then, you know, the the photographers, Richard Avedon, I mean, amazing photographs of beautiful, in air quotes, bodies. And I just surrounded myself with that norm. And then in the middle of that was a full-length mirror, right? So like right. all of the mind of what my body should look like, what my body did look like, I mean, all of that... Um, so yeah, I mean, representation makes such a huge difference. So in terms of representation, people are right now, in terms of like how this is changing, trying hard to put more size 10 women, size 12 women, like, uh, who's that famous model right now? Ashley Graham. Yeah. Ashley Graham. And she's sort of famously being put out there as like, you can be beautiful at any size. It's crazy though. She's a size 12. That's literally what most women are. Oh, that's so funny. She's a size 12. Right. I mean, that most women cannot shop for themselves in a standard store, right? And that if you go to a department store and you are a size 12 or a size 14, you're going to have to actually go ask somebody what kind of stock they have, you know, behind the scenes. People are making a lot of money off of people being unhappy in their bodies. I mean, these are multi-billion dollar industries. You mean diet, exercise, gyms? Oh, yeah. I mean, plastic surgery, you know, I mean, all of it. Um, So for sure. How happy are you with your body? Because you have really kind of a quote-unquote lovely body. And I just wonder, like, do you think about your body as much as I think about my body? 
I was deeply identified with my body when I was younger. So um, I got lots and lots and lots of positive um, feedback about my body from a very young age. And it felt to me like that was my calling card. And when I was a teenager and I had terrible skin, I mean, talk about genetics and, you know, you win some, you lose some, right? Like I had awful skin as a teenager. And so I think, Mm -hmm. And I think that for me, it felt like, oh, I better never lose this thing that people do like about me. And it just like got really lodged in my head. I mean, sort of like if you have, you know, straight A's, it doesn't mean like you can take your foot off the pedal. It means actually like you just have further to fall. And so, you know, I think I felt like that about my body. And I started to really kind of manage my body and think about my body in those terms. And, you know, it led to me engaging in behaviors that really didn't serve me. And um, it took a long time. And I mean, still, it's a practice of like rewiring my brain around thinking about that. And the work that I do working with people with disordered eating, you know, keeps me, I mean, talk about like, you can't fall back in that trap when you're working with people and seeing the consequences on the daily of what it feels like to hate the skin that you're in and to be so, you know, ill at ease in, in, in your being. So we talked a little bit about the industries that benefit from Mm -hmm. everybody feeling crappy about their bodies. And there Mm -hmm. are many. Can you talk about innocent mistakes that regular Joes make all the time? Like Mm -hmm. I, I, I know because we've been walking together for 12 years now that there's a lot of um, really unfortunate fat talk where mm-hmm. you'll be watching the Oscars and you'll say like, oh, I should have put on a few pounds. Or mm-hmm. someone will come in your in your house for a cocktail party in the old days when people did those things. And you'd say, oh my God, have you lost weight? You look incredible. And then everyone kind of spins around and makes this huge deal about somebody losing weight. So can mm-hmm. you talk about innocent mistakes that regular people make that are making things worse for all of us? Oh, I mean, I think you just kind of captured it. When we talk about fat talk, people sort of think about that comment you made about the Oscars or pointing out, oh, she shouldn't be wearing spandex. But I actually think that the the second one that you talked about can be sort of equally nefarious, right? I mean, when we are praising people for weight loss, what we are saying is, a, I'm looking at you and I'm I'm really scrutinizing what you look like. I notice and I have real judgment about it. It is better for you to be less and I'm going to comment on it and probably I'm going to comment in front of other people because I think it's a compliment, right? And so maybe your sons or daughters are there, you know, internalizing thin is better. So You just said that we're all sending this message unwittingly that thin is better. Mm -hmm. There are tons of doctors and medical professionals who would say thin is better. Mm -hmm. What is the relationship between thinness and health? Well, I think it's much more complicated than doctors would have us believe in our really short appointments with them, right? So teasing apart, what are the negative health outcomes associated with weight stigma, associated with the fact that you might be afraid to go to the doctor because 
you don't want to be shamed associated with the fact that when you go to the doctor, they will, and I hear this all the time from my clients, they will assume that whatever is wrong with you is related to your inability to manage your weight, right? So these ways of sort of asking people and expecting people to have control over their weight have really negative um, outcomes on in terms of how people feel about themselves, right? So that shame leads actually to less physical activity, less, you know, public, joyful, engaged eating, right? More eating, eating by yourself, less going to an exercise class, you know, fewer doctor's appointments, all of those kinds of things. I mean, I often say when a doctor tells you to lose weight, we actually have no good research on long-term successful, quote unquote, weight loss. So what a doctor is saying is like, Kelly, you go learn how to fly and then come back to me and I will praise you for that. Right? right. I don't know how how you can do that. So I can't really prescribe it to you other than to say, I don't know, like flap your wings, right? Doctors are typically not talking to people about ways that they can connect more to the care of their body, which would benefit all of us, you know, fat thin otherwise. Yeah. That's so interesting. So what is the deal with like, you know how when you take your kid to the pediatrician and they put, they chart their like height and weight and their head size and they put it on that percentile curve? Mm. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? It's fantastic. It's fantastic. That's I mean, the what opposite I, of what I thought you were going to say. I thought you were going to say that's really problematic because it's putting all this focus on their their height and weight. I mean, I don't have a problem with putting focus on weight. Like I actually, you know, in my field, there's a lot of controversy around whether we let our patients, especially our teen patients, see their weight each week when, you know, they're getting weight restored. And I'm a big proponent of, yes, I mean, in the same way that they see their blood pressure and their heart rate, like it's just a number, right? We have so much value associated with those numbers. So how do we kind of de-stigmatize it, de, um, you know, emphasize it in a way? It's just one of a whole bunch of health indicators, right? What it does is it shows us over time what our what each child's internal blueprint is, where they should be assuming, you know, no adverse life event around, you know, their sort of height and weight. And so if your kid up until age 5 was in the 75th percentile, we can predict and expect that they will remain in the 75th percentile, again, unless something dramatically changes. So what I see in my office all the time, and the first question I ask is, please bring me or have your you know, doctor email me the growth chart. That's, that's what I need. I can't tell by looking at you that you're underweight or overweight because it's only compared to you. It's not compared to me and it's not compared to your friends and it's not compared to your peer group. It's only compared to you. So you may still be bigger than all of your friends, but you may also have anorexia because you were supposed to be in the 75th percentile and now you're down at the 50th percentile and you live in an affluent place where it's all white and Asian wealthy bodies and those tend to be thinner and you know come from parts of the world with thinner bodies. And so you're comparing yourself to those people and it's problematic because you are starving, actually, at your weight. Mm. So 
whatever you were when you were three, four, five years old, this is a perfectly reasonable assumption that that's where you'll always be. So most people don't have the information that you have. Most of us are just living in the world where the societal images are winning. Mm-hmm. And, and all of our children are living on social media. Mm-hmm. How do you operate within that context and keep your head about you? Well, I mean, the same way that we're sort of tackling all kinds of implicit or, you know, unconscious biases, right? It's by trying to slow down to gain education and awareness. I mean, I think about, you know, what you have been talking about lately, Kelly, around, you know, diet is not just what you eat, right? It's like what you take in. I sit with my clients and we look through their Instagram feeds, you know, like, who are you seeing? And, you know, you don't have all the control in the world over it, but it turns out if you're following different bodies, bodies, you know, and again, different in quotes, right? Because different from the white skinny bodies. If you're following that variety, if you are learning, teaching yourself how to find multiple things beautiful and, you know, interesting and aesthetically pleasing and worthy of compassion, all of that kind of stuff. I mean, we have a lot of unlearning to do, but it requires slowing down, getting curious, right? Asking questions, um, reading things we wouldn't otherwise read, you know, questioning experts. Before we take a short break, let me just thank my production partner on the How Change Happens series, the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations, supporting inclusive higher education and healthcare, vibrant spiritual communities, and a clean environment. The Arthur Vining Davis Foundations, investing in our common future. This episode was funded by the great people at the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. You can learn more about this fantastic organization at avdf.org, the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations, investing in our common future. When you're hiring for your small business, you want quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than, wait for it, a billion professionals, which makes it the best place on earth to hire the right people. It gives you access to applicants you can't find anywhere else. LinkedIn does all that while making the process easy and totally intuitive. Hiring is easy when you have this many qualified candidates right at your fingertips. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. LinkedIn Jobs just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash kelly. That's linkedin.com slash kelly to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, welcome back. I'm talking today with Arielle Trost and her patient, Lindsay about eating disorders and the ways that people recover their sense of self and identity that transcends their bodies. So we've talked a lot about how society has changed and maybe is changing around body images. 
How long have you been meeting with people about body stuff? For the last, you know, 14 years. Roughly. What percentage of your patients, quote unquote, get better, can make the change? Oh, I mean, all of them get better. All of them get better. Um, I was just talking with one of my wise colleagues yesterday about this concept of full recovery and we were debating it a little bit. It feels so important for me as a clinician to hold on to the belief that full recovery is possible. I believe that to be true. And it's so important to know that it's possible. I also believe more and more that recovery is a practice and that, you know, our brains are living and constantly changing and it requires vigilance and that um, we live in a pretty sick society when it comes to bodies and, and pleasure and food and, uh, you know, all of this kind of stuff. And so trying to be healthy in an unhealthy society is very, very complicated and hard. Everybody gets better. One metric for quote unquote, getting better, how much mind share you give your body? That's a huge metric for me. I call it mental real estate. You know, I mean, what I really think about is, oh my gosh, the things that our 16-year-old brains are supposed to be doing and thinking about right now, like the the big issues of becoming and being in the world and how how much of your mental real estate is taken up with counting calories or measuring body parts or, you know, looking in the mirror and speaking meanly to yourself. I mean, all of that is what we're practicing. And so that's the part of the brain that's getting bigger and stronger and, you know, what we're becoming by doing that. And it, I mean, that just breaks my heart. Because it's an opportunity cost thing. Yes. And, and if we think about the fact that girls will gain I think it's like 25% of their weight during puberty, you know, sometimes something around like 40 pounds, you know, often during those years of puberty. So at this super sensitive time in terms of figuring out who you are in the world and what's important to you and to the people around you, you are navigating this dramatically changing body and how the world responds to it. I remember meeting this wonderful man. His name's Gordon Gund and he's blind And I was so enjoying getting to know him. And it took me a minute to realize like no one on earth until Gordon Gund was meeting me strictly on the basis of the things I said and the thoughts I had and the way I expressed myself. Everyone else was seeing me first. And and whatever they're seeing is sort of getting in the way or supporting Mm-hmm. where I want the relationship to go. And in a weird way, I was thinking, oh, that we could all be taking each other in strictly on the power of our ideas and their expression, rather than first deciding, are you beautiful? Are you thin? Is your hair long or short? Do you wear glasses? Do you have pimples? Like All that information isn't really going to the good but it is there and it is we are visual people and 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 we have tons of associations positive and negative with every conceivable element of a person's appearance right and that's why we need more storytellers and more 
people in different bodies making movies and writing books and, you know, producing content, right? So that we can have this varied experience. Well, that's a sort of a reason why I love podcasts because we're all invisible. And so it is the Gordon Gund experience. It is just voices, ideas, storytelling, expression. So will you tell us a little bit about Lindsay? Mm, Yes. Um, Lindsay is one of my all-time favorite humans. I met Lindsay when I wasn't even licensed yet. I had graduated from from graduate school and I was working in San Francisco at an eating disorder outpatient clinic. And um, one of the first people who was assigned to me was this 19-year-old young woman who had been in treatment for, I think, five years or her eating disorder. And my first piece of information was that she had fired my boss. And so he assigned her to me. And in walks, in walks Lindsay. She was wearing the, the Lindsay um, uniform, which was a humongous sweatshirt hoodie, sort of, uh, you know, dwarfing the top half of her body and and shorts. And so she was like, you know, there was like this sort of turtle with legs quality to her. Um, (laughs) um, She was stunning in her articulation about things. She was raised by by two psychologists and um, she had just phenomenal language about her experience. And and she was also visibly stunning. And I remember from the very beginning, just wondering how um, the, the gift, I think, as you called it earlier, you know, congratulations on your face, how that had been, um, how that had impacted her, you know, positively and negatively throughout her life. So, and thus began our, our relationship. And, um, then she followed me to private practice and, um, and we have been through a lot together. So that was about 14 years ago. And you guys have been working together for 14 years. Yeah, we've had we've had a lot of um, a lot of breaks, and um, there have been many sort of iterations to our work. But I have to say, I mean, one of the things that I love most about working with teens is when they come back, and I get to work with them at different stages and different stages of their lives and different stages of their brain development and what they're sort of capable of doing in therapy and how they're capable of of thinking and. So that doesn't feel like a failure. Oh gosh, no. That they come back. No, and it's such a mythology. I mean, I, you know, clients when they call to come back often, you know, feel ashamed like they sh- they shouldn't need it again. I mean, I call it tune-ups, you know, it's it's maintenance work and I think it's incredibly brave to come back um when things are just different. I mean, we learn in these spirals and not in a linear kind of progression. Yeah. And as we'll hear from Lindsay, her story is, you know, very, very nonlinear. Yeah. I don't think it's a failure either, but I just wanted to say that in case someone out there was like, what, they come back? Like, that's not all the way it's supposed to be. And it's like, mm, maybe it is the way it's supposed to be. So mm. Lindsay. Hi. Hi. Thanks a lot for doing this. This is part of a series about how things change for people or for societies. And so I'm wondering off the top at a really high level, how have you changed? I'm glad you asked that because I was trying to think about how to start my story. And I kind of feel like I have to start with what I've most recently gone through in order to work backwards. So 
let me just start with, I was diagnosed two years ago with stage four salivary gland cancer. And in that first surgery, um, they had to cut my right facial nerve. So I have partial paralysis on the right side of my face. They had to put a weight in my eye. I have, you know, a pretty big scar on my neck and there's an indentation on the side of my face. So the very thing that your whole life has been so notable about you changed. Well, what I perceived is notable about me. Mm. Um, But yes, that shifted. But that perceived change for me um, forced me to look at things and look at what I bring into my relationships and the world in a completely different way. So I want to start with that and where I'm coming from now along the trajectory of the work that like Ariel and I have done together. And what was the way that your disorder manifested? Um, I was bulimic. Um, it was about age 14. Um, again, right during that puberty period of time where we were talking about where you do gain some weight as your body is changing. Um, I became very aware of the fact that, again, growing up, I got a lot of praise for the way that I looked. I was I was thin in a thin body. Um, and I did grow up in a society where that was praised. And I grew up in a family where that was really important. My whole extended family as well. So um, when I did start gaining the weight, it was something that I became really aware of. I also didn't know that I was actually going through some sort of depression. And I remember coming home and making crepes every day after school and sitting down in front of the TV and being able to totally numb out. I had been told multiple times by different people, like, you're gaining weight, or I see that your body is changing. And it changed very quickly. It was really eighth grade summer into freshman year, my boobs grew like three sizes. And you hated it. I hated it. I mean, I hated that I had huge stretch marks. I felt like I came back to school and everyone was talking about how I got a boob job. And I mean, and there was a lot of attention on this thing that made me feel very uncomfortable. It wasn't something that I felt good about. It felt like I I remember trying to decide what I wanted to wear freshman year of high school and going through all of these shirts because I was trying, again, it kind of goes back to the large sweatshirt and the small shorts. <laughs> I was trying to figure out how I wanted to show, show my body. And I had really conflicted feelings about that because on the one side, I was like, I'm getting all of this attention. And there's a part of me that likes that. And on the other hand, I feel totally unequipped to deal with that. I felt like it was this thing that I all of a sudden could control and I dropped weight very quickly. And again, I got a lot of praise for that. And, you know, thinking back over my life, the periods of time that I've weighed the least, I've usually been the most unhappy. (laughs) And that was a period of time that I, again, it was kind of coupled with this feeling like, oh, I, I have now found the solution. Like this is the answer to to all of my problems. And also I feel very alone and very scared. So yeah, I started throwing up multiple times a day. My mom found out very quickly. It was about five months in and I would always go into the bathroom, run the shower, try to do things, you know, to make it not obvious. But clearly she saw the difference in my weight and my behavior. And 
luckily did have a very, very close group of girlfriends. And I was able to share that with them pretty quickly because there was this combination of feeling like I had found a solution and also feeling so much shame about what I was doing, feeling like I'm such a fraud. Um, And again, you kind of look like, well, I'm eating with the rest of people and I'm doing what all of these people are doing, but I'm magically not gaining weight. I'm actually losing weight. So there was this really um, kind of weird dichotomy. You know, that's like the whole magic of coming clean and is that you can't even have intimacy if people don't really know you. And, mm-hmm. and the really dastardly part of it is if, if you're getting a lot of positive feedback from your friends, not even about your weight, but just about you as a person, and you have this huge secret, then mm-hmm. all that feedback means nothing. You can just wipe it all away. It has no impact on your confidence or your self-esteem or your sense of security in the world because it's not real because they don't know. And yeah. and you can always hold out that if they knew you, if they knew the real you, what you were really doing, they'd hate you or they'd leave you, you know? Yeah. I know you were getting gobs of feedback about your appearance. Were you getting feedback about other things like your grades or were you on a team? Did you play sports or... You know, did you run for student government or was there any other angle through which Mm -hmm. you could have thought of yourself as, well, maybe I'm not this, but I'm that? Yeah, I think that was a huge part of me getting lost kind of in, in my appearance was that I grew up in an upper middle class, you know, community in Lafayette. And it wasn't even that you have to be average, you have to excel in something. If it's not academically, it's in, you know, soccer or tennis or whatever you're doing or singing or, but you have to be better than. And I was diagnosed with a learning disability, I think it was in fifth grade. Um, and I really struggled with, um, with my reading comprehension and with some of my math skills. And I just remember even being pulled out in fifth grade and feeling like all of a sudden I was different. Um, And it was taking me longer to learn things. And I grew up in a family where being intellectual and, you know, where people went to college and what they did was really praised. And I was very clearly not meeting the standard. in our community and in my family. And I think turning to the way that I looked was kind of an easy out. Um, And it was something that I felt like, again, I kind of had control over. And so, you know, I don't know how much being really good at soccer would have changed the trajectory of how things went for me. But I do know that that was a big factor. How long did it take for you to want and you're really in your heart to want to stop doing it versus to know that you should stop doing it? I mean, I was really, really unhappy within like a year. It was not long that I, that I felt really trapped um, and really scared and really alone. And that cyclical kind of terrible place where you're, eating, you know, in your car by yourself and trying to find the nearest gas station to go throw up. It's such a, um, 
it's such a lonely and scary place to be. So I had conflicted feelings about it because on the one hand, I really did feel like this was so much of my identity. And on the other hand, I felt it was terrible. So I wanted to stop. What put you into inpatient treatment? I think it was at that point, both my mom and I knowing that all the resources that we had tapped into outpatient were not going to work. It was my senior year of high school. At that point, I had really checked out. I was missing a lot of school and really not there. It was both of us kind of realizing that that something needed to give. Can I ask for every mother listening to this, is there something that your mother could have done between ninth grade and 12th to take care of their kids better? Well, there's two sides of this one. I want to be very protective of my own mom because I know she was just doing the best she could at that time. Um, But the other big piece, I think, is starting with all of the awareness that we just talked about around BMI and where you are supposed to be at and this grace period with your body during puberty and while it's changing. Um, But I would start off by saying, um, you know, do not push any of your own onto your child. All of your fear around the way that you are supposed to look in our society and how we perceive that to be and just honestly wanting to take care of your kid and wanting them to have the best life. Um, But allowing them to just evolve the way that they are supposed to evolve physically and emotionally and spiritually. I think that is number one in terms of prevention. Um, Definitely don't take them to Weight Watchers. Definitely don't push any of that on them. Um, But, you know, I think the main thing is just being able to offer a safe landing pad for them and a place for them to feel safe enough to share. You know, it's so interesting. I'm so compassionate to all mothers and I've made every mistake there is to make in the world with kids. And the thing I want to say on behalf of all of us stupid moms who are saying the wrong things and doing the wrong things sometimes is that it's this terrible impulse Mm -hmm. to be like, I can protect you from pain. Like don't, don't wear that sweater. That sweater doesn't look good. You know, uh, let me help you with your paper. You can get a better grade. You need a haircut. Yeah. And uh, let's pop that zit. And, you know, all this stuff is not, is, I hope, is not for our own gratification, but rather to protect you from ridicule out there. You decided that you wanted to get better and you went to this inpatient thing. Mm-hmm. Was it effective? Like, was did it totally accelerate your recovery? Yeah, I think... You know, I thought a lot about recovery. I think so much of it is also developmental and where you are. I think it gave me a lot of tools. It was a really good treatment center that focused on intuitive eating and allowed me to tap into my body and just know what three regular meals are with three snacks. Um, And it gave me a lot more awareness of kind of the ways that I had perceived myself and, um, and who I was. And it was also a lot of it was timing. I was 17 years old. Um, so it did help a lot, but the, it started that path. I'll say that. I still needed to do a lot more work. What do you think 
was critical to the changes that you've made? So one is your inpatient experience. Mm -hmm. Two is ongoing therapy for sure. Mm -hmm. Three is Ariel, of course. Yeah. I don't know if I'd put her three. She might be number one. Mm. Yeah. So those three for sure. Um, I think a lot of it is me um, kind of figuring out and learning who I am and what I offer to the world outside of the way that I look. I think for me, that was really big. Um, I never really got the opportunity to learn how to learn. And through college, I kind of was able to um, to get interested in other things. I mean, to you know, to explore completely different parts of the world. I went to Africa for a while and I learned Swahili and there were no mirrors in Africa. And the host family that I was in, my mama told me every day, you need to gain weight. She would rub my belly and say, not good, not good. It was just such a different cultural experience. Um, so yeah, I think it was for me um, realizing all of the other things that I had to give. And as that continued through becoming a nurse and going to nursing school and just continuing to build my self-worth outside of um, my external appearance, that for me was um, a huge part of my recovery. And I do think it's I think there are a lot of universal um, truths, but I also think so much of it is your own story and your own process. Um, so I think that was the biggest change for me was, you know, going back to how much real estate that takes up in your brain. It just, I filled it in with so many other things, with community, with, um, you know, not just presenting like I'm being authentic, but really being genuinely vulnerable and those two things for me were really important. Tell me about nursing. I think so much of what has informed nursing for me now is being on the other side and being a patient too. But I start. I was in labor and delivery. I went directly into maternity. So I was a labor and delivery nurse. Um, and it's funny. I was actually really trying to choose between oncology and potentially the ER and L&D, which is kind of like I see it as two sides of the human experience. Um, but I, yeah, I remember seeing my first birth and I just saw this um, baby come out of this woman and her experience, the tears and the love she had for her partner and holding this like little, just reminded me of like a baby kangaroo on her breast. And I was just like, holy I don't know if there's anything bigger than this. Um, and being able to be there and support them through that process, it was um, it was just really powerful for me. I think I think that being able to take care of people when they are at their most vulnerable has always been um, kind of a dream of mine. Oh my gosh, yes. And I, I think that all of the work that I had done prior to this informed my decisions moving forward with how I dealt with having a cancer diagnosis. Because I remember it was about a year in and I went really back and go down every path and I go all the way to the bottom. And so I was reading all of the books and heard all the things and I went to retreats and programs where they pushed 
I mean, we know all the general stuff, no sugar, more vegetables, all of it, cruciferous vegetables. Um, and these, these supplements are these things that are like your, your catch all, right. They'll, they'll fix you. Um, and I had to make a decision. Um, and I, I remember it was Ariel that said to me, she's like, I, I'm kind of seeing it like telling a drug addict that marijuana is going to help them with their pain and with their nausea in cancer treatment. Um, it doesn't really matter if it, if it does or doesn't work for you. If you start going down that path, we know where it's going to lead. And I don't know why when she said that something clicked for me and I was like, Oh my God. Yes. And I think the stress about whether or not to eat that cookie or to have that ice cream at night, um, was so much more harmful to my body than just allowing myself to have that thing. Um, that, that was really a shift for me and it's been so freeing. And I think part of that too is what I was talking about earlier with my face and the way that I see who I am now in the world and what I bring into my conversations, how I, how I orient is so different. Um, so I was really able to let all of that go. I mean, my body, all of it has changed so much. I mean, I have like a 16 inch scar on my leg. I have scars all over. So when I look at myself naked before I get in the shower now, it's, it's such a different experience. Um, and I, it's weird that I, I feel so physically changed and you might look at my body in a swimsuit and think very differently in terms of the societal idea and what is lovely now. Um, I, I feel so much more love for myself and I hope that it doesn't take traumatic, terrible events to get people to that place, but that it was, it was a leap in, in just how I see myself now. Oh, I'm so happy. How is your health rate the second with the cancer? Right now it's good. I mean, I just went through uh, another brain surgery two months ago. So saying that probably sounds really weird, but my whole adaptation to, um, to health in general has changed. I think for me waking up and feeling physically good and being able to walk and feel sunshine and be with my dog and the people that I love is kind of my gauge of my health. Um, and Right now, I feel good, and my quality of life is really good, um, and I'm able to be here talking to you. I'm so glad. Thank you so much for doing this, Lindsay. Thank you. Super great to meet you. I learned a lot today from Lindsay and Arielle. Here are my takeaways. One, being largely unattainable is a key feature of how beauty operates. Two, I am not alone in thinking terrible, judgmental, rotten, nasty thoughts about my own body. Three, industry is making a lot of money by keeping people unhappy with their shape and size. Four, there's a correlation worth investigating between body shaming and white supremacy. Five, be careful what you praise people for. Complimenting someone about losing weight can actually sound like 
I'm looking at your body and deciding it is better now than it was. Six, puberty brings weight gain. Don't panic. Seven, though they can be essential to recovery, parents do not cause eating disorders. Eight, once you've seen a baby be born, you'll never again think of a body and the miraculous things it can do in quite the same way again. And number nine, food is a gift to be savored, preferably with people you love. If this conversation has you worried about yourself or someone you love, the best place to learn more is nationaleatingdisorders.com. Also, Arielle wanted me to tell you the groups with the fastest growing rates of eating disorders are boys and younger kids ages 9 to 11. And secondly, that our preoccupation with health like keto or Whole30 or veganism or intermittent fasting is just dieting by a new name. And those practices and ideas can be dangerous for kids who are more concrete in their thinking. Coming up next time on Kelly Corrigan Wonders. This week, I'm wondering about college. So I myself had a rip-roaring good time at the University of Richmond in the late 80s. Now that I'm the person who pays tuition bills, I'm wondering about the massive investment that is college. In the next episode, Kelly takes an in-depth look at the changing face of higher ed, the value of liberal arts, and the danger of a one-size-fits-all college experience. Kelly's guests include her daughter, a sophomore at Georgetown, Tara Westover, the author of Educated, Londe Ajose from the California Office of Education, and Jeremy Rossman, an MIT dropout, who went on to start his own college. I want to thank Dr. Ariel Trost for being here today, but also for years and years of conversation and friendship. I want to thank Lindsay. I want to thank the Kelly Corrigan Wonders team of Susan George and Dean Kateri. I also want to thank the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations for making this podcast series about change possible. Thanks for being here. Join the conversation on Instagram at Kelly Corrigan and enjoy all the episodes of Kelly Corrigan Wonders wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks, guys. I'll see you online. Hey, I have a quick favor to ask. We are conducting a survey to get to know you, our audience, better. It won't take long and it's easy to find. Visit survey.prx.org slash Kelly. That's survey.prx.org slash Kelly. Thank you.